this is Roger Bennett from Men in Blazers. I think the accent of Matthew McFadden combined with the social skills of Cousin Greg. And like millions of you, I adore Succession with its manic takeovers, eye-watering put-downs, fleeting glimpses of humanity smothered by greed, aspiration, desperate cries for attention, and chivroy power turtlenecks. So what if your wider cultural interest is hate-jerking to Instagram, just asking for a friend? Tolstoy wrote in Anna Karenina, All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. The Roy family are the exception. Their unhappiness so vast, it seems to encompass the sum unhappiness of every other family in the world. Living proof, it's possible to have everything and nothing. I truly believe the show's performances, the writing, the humanity make succession like Game of Thrones without the dragons and direwolves. Warring families, self-destructive fights for power and epic battle scenes, albeit once fought out in the boardroom and not at Castle Winterfell, which is why I'm delighted to host HBO's Succession podcast, a show designed to give you a weekly succession fix via a long-form conversation with the people who make the show such must-watch, must-process, must-discuss fair. What are we, a fucking octopus giving, like, reach-arounds to to every fish on the reef now? Let's dive right in. With all the courage of Jerry taking a relationship with Roman Roy to the next level. Before we begin, two quick warnings. Spoiler alert, obviously. If you've not watched Succession, we are going to be talking as if you have. And big one, language warning. To not swear in a Succession podcast, it'd be like asking Picasso to paint without a brush. So brace your ears for a good old Logan Roy fuck off or two. To the pod. When you launch a Succession podcast, you've got to go right to the top for your first guest. In this case, to the executive suite of Waystar Royco to spend time with the Emmy Award and Golden Globe winner who plays Logan Roy. That Scottish-born media magnate, a monstrous patriarch, the most bellicose man ever clad in a power shawl collar cardigan. A bloke who spends his waking hours beating back hostile takeovers, grappling with his declining health and torturing his perpetually disappointing offspring. As a result, it's perhaps no surprise he has more ways of saying fuck off than the Finnish have for snow. Conniving, contriving, surviving, whose favourite Shakespeare quote is Take the fucking money. L to the OG, dude be the OG, A-N-E playing. It is a joy to welcome to HBO Succession podcast, the dark heart of the show. It's Mr Brian Cox. Ah, hello, Roger. How are you? Good, now you're here. That was quite an introduction. I'm exhausted, Brian Cox, CBE. It's a testament, that introduction, to the career you've had. Argyle Wallace in Braveheart, the corrupt CIA boss Ward Abbott in Born Identity, one of my personal favourites, Dr. Nelson Guggenheim in Rushmore. You are 74 years of age, hundreds of roles, but I love this quote of yours. I've been doing reasonably well. I can't complain but a role like Logan Roy comes along once in a generation and you just go, wow. Yeah, that's true. Q kind of mentors said, you know, it will be the long run for you. It's not going to be overnight success. And I said, 
okay. But actually, I've done very well considering because I've had series of overnight successes on the way, you know, and, and then the opposite, you know. So it's gone like that. And when a role like Logan Roy comes along, well, it's pretty unbeatable, really. In Hollywood, which you came to relatively late, Brian, you've carved out a niche as a renter baddie, playing the evil striker in X-Men 2, the original Hannibal Lecter in Michael Mann's cult thriller Manhunter, your Nazi war criminal Hermann Goering, stuff of my nightmares in Nuremberg, proper terrifying. And I've heard that when Adam McKay, Jesse Armstrong and succession casting director Francie Meisler were thinking about who could possibly play Logan Roy, your name was atop of all their wish lists. How does that feel to hear that when it comes to volcanic, abusive patriarchs, everyone's like, get me, Cox! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of backhanded compliment in a way, you know. It's very funny. I remember years and years ago, I'd played so many of these characters in Macbeth and Shakespeare and all these bad guys, Iago and all that. I sort of got to a point where I think it was in the 90s when I think it was playing Lear and I was on tour and I was thinking, why do I have to play all these bad people, all these people that are, you know, flawed in some way? And then you realize that we're all flawed. That's the interesting thing, is to take somebody like these characters and give them a point of view. Giving them a point of view is the key thing. They require it. Your job requires that you do it, you know, rather than play the mustache-twirling villain. I mean, these villains are deep and mysterious. As a man who's 97% made of flaws, Brian, I'm nodding in complete agreement. And I love the fact that when your agents first broached the idea of the show to you back in 2016... They'd seen that your character lapses into a coma at the end of the pilot and sold it to you as a quick one-off that won't take too much of your time. He's had a stroke, they said. Don't worry, you'll be dead after one season. Yeah, that's right. That was the original intention. <laughs> but that conversation was nipped in the bud. Actually, as I was speaking to both Adam McKay in LA and Jesse Armstrong, who was in Italy when the pitch call came, I said, so it's a one season part. I'm, and there was a long pause on either side of the Atlantic. And finally, Jesse went, well, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I am amongst the millions who were glad that it wasn't one season and out. But in your own words, how would you describe the heart of this character, Logan Roy, a self-made man who comes to realize all the money and power in the world can't help him defy time. I think that he's always known that. When you get close to your sell-by date, it begins to sort of amplify. But I also think that Logan has no illusions. The one thing that he and I share is his, his disappointment in the human experiment. Logan is really, really very disappointed. I'm an optimist. I see possibility. But Logan just knows that it's not going to get any better. It's going to get a lot worse. And of course, it's tragic for him because he sees it. I asked Jesse this question very, very early on. I said, does he love his children? The answer was a redoubtable, oh, yes, yes, he really does love his children. So given that, the fact that, that he is locked into his children in that way, you realize that his children are just a sort of deep, deep disappointment to him. But then he also understands that they come from an unreal world. And we're seeing it all the time with the Jared Kushners and the Ivanka Trumps. We're seeing people who are not up to their job, doing a job which they really aren't designed for. They really exist, these children. And it's a hard thing for them in a way. So there's always that element of these families and 
finally, when they get to what looks like the end of the rainbow, they discover that it's vacuous. There's nothing there. Even the way you are framing the character and his family, you are proving what makes it such a subtle piece of television, the rich layers of succession. Yeah. I mean, Luke and Roy, would you agree he's both timeless, Shakespearean, King Lear, and completely of the present tense, the perfect symbol of our current reality slash darkness? He is our current reality. And the key thing is, unlike Trump, unlike Murdoch, unlike Conrad Black, unlike Redstone, he is a self-made man. He came from nothing, so he's established. And that's a much better scenario, and therefore, potentially, there's more dramatic value in that. You see these mistakes happening in time and time again in families, and you see the inevitability of it. Because once you go down a particular road, and it's a road of success, it's very hard to back off. And that's what Logan, in a way, ironically suffers from. Oh, it's like the Larkin poem. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Emily van der Werf wrote in Vox, we exist in a world full of men who believe that if they shout something loudly enough, it's true. And who take extreme offence to the idea that maybe they are wrong no matter how gently we break it to them. How apt is that phrase in terms of describing Logan? I think it's true. You know, he's a man who is not just in terms of himself, but in terms of what he represents. These men are reaching their sell-by date. It's coming very, very quickly. And of course, this present COVID crisis is pointing that up very, very sharply. The whole male prerogative just doesn't work. It hasn't worked for some time. And I think that it's a dying breed. We are a dying breed and we have to accept it. You know, for centuries, we've screwed it up. And it really is now over to the women. But the problem for the women is that what they've inherited from the men, they've got so much to sort out as well. And you see that in the relationship with his favorite child, which is Shiv. You know, and Siobhan is someone he deeply loves. He brings her on board and he said, of course, it has to be secret to now. Constantly he's throwing out these little tests of character. That's what people don't quite realize about Logan. He's constantly challenging his children to say, what are you going to come up with? What are you going to do? What is the source of Logan's pain? At the swimming pool in New Mexico, we see the scars across his back. You've explained them away as a result of physical beatings at the hands of an uncle who raised him in Canada. It's certainly connected in some way with that. He was abused terribly as a child. He was taken from his environment, sent to Canada, returned to Scotland, never quite made a go of it and made a decision which was... He was going to be his own man, willy-nilly. Now, we all have that to a, a certain extent. I certainly have it. But then you have to be careful that it becomes a power for good rather than a power for the opposite. That's where Logan falls down because it became a power for ambition. Logan Roy is a beast. Yet it has to be said, there's a nuanced overlap between the biography of Logan Roy and one Brian Cox. People describe him as my evil twin. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the series, which is so weird, originally I wasn't born in Dundee. Originally I was born in Quebec, and it was only on the ninth episode of the first series that Peter Friedman, who had to do some ADR, and he said, oh, they've changed your birthplace. And I went, what? Changed my birthplace? Yeah, yeah, you're not born in Quebec anymore. I said, so where am I born? He said, oh, well, something called Dundee, Scotland. And I went, but that's where I'm from. Yes. And of course, when I went to Jesse and I said, what's 
going on? You know, what is this? And of course, they're very cunning, these writers. He said, we thought it'd be a little surprise. <laughs> and of course, they do work off us. They do take so much from what we do into the show. I mean, both men are Dundee hard. Yeah. You both survived Dickensian poor childhoods built on struggle. You're both self-made human beings, working class kids who ground their way through desire and tenacity and a single-mindedness to success. Both have a daughter and three sons from two marriages. And also like your alter ego, your childhood was unimaginably different than your current reality, your adult hoarder, and also the reality you're able to provide for your kids. Logan's self-taught, self-motivated. How much of an overlap is there in the Venn diagram of Logan Roy and Brian Cox? In circumstantial sense, there is a great deal of overlap. I think my saving grace is that I discovered the humanities, so I discovered the arts. And it's the arts that have really liberated me in a way. And it's the arts that have been my master and mistress throughout my entire life. I love my job. I think it's a very powerful job. I think we underestimate the power of what we do. So I was very lucky that I was never interested in money as such because I understood real poverty. Money was just a huge impediment in my life. Now I appreciate it and now I'm doing quite well. So I'm really, I'm really quite grateful. When I was younger, that's not what you do it for. You do it for something else. Whereas Logan realized that the only thing that he could do was make as much money as he could. And that's what gave him his sort of freedom. But it's not. It's like a stick for your own back. You know, if Logan Roy had done more amateur dramatics as a youth, there would be no succession. (laughs) You were once asked if playing in a long-running TV series required you to live inside your character. And you acknowledged it did. So what I want to know is how have you lived inside Logan Roy and whether it's changed you in a way, Brian? No, not at all. It's a discipline. I think there's a great deal of can't and nonsense talked about my job you know you have to be flexible you have to be able to turn on a sixpence you have to be able to do things which are quite intellectually acrobatic you know you've got to have that ability you can't get bound by what you do you know because as my mother used to say brian it's only a film or brian it's only a play it's no real Just remember, it's no real. That's the best advice of all, because it isn't real. It's an unreality that you're dealing with. You're reflecting on reality, but it's something else. Shakespeare describes it brilliantly as holding the mirror up to nature. And that's what you do. So you hope that the mirror up to nature in all its horribleness. As a man who's known for putting a lot of research into his roles, take us back to the beginning and talk about the process through which you prepared to make Logan Roy live beyond the page. Well, he's witty. He's very funny, he's no holds barred, and nothing impresses him. So his son's Patik Philippe Watch, he really doesn't care about. He has no interest in that. He's actually slightly more interested in the idea of his other son getting this sourdough (laughs) bread, which is kind of curious. But he treats them just the same. He sees through things. And that's his strength in one sense. But then his heart is kind of empty. That's the tragedy of it. Logan Roy's signature light motif is the ageless adage. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. No, fuck off. Fuck off. You, fuck off. If you can't do it, fuck off. Go on, fuck off. Get out of here. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. Yeah, fuck off. Yeah, yeah. Few human beings in the history of television have loved to drop the F-bomb 
more than he. You've said it for yourself, I love to swear, I don't buy this nonsense that swearing is a sign of a limited vocabulary. Good swearing can be incredibly expressive. Whose idea was it to make fuck off his signature everything? Well, it just arrived just because I happened to be saying at least once or twice or even <laughs> six times in an episode. I mean, I didn't think anything about it. I never thought it was going to be the catchphrase of Logan Roy. These were my lines. And I just said, oh, fuck off, you know, fuck off, fuck off. You know, I mean, there's, there's various tones that you employ. Oh, what I revere, I have to say, as an Englishman who grew up in Liverpool, where the word fuck is used 24-7 as an adjective, noun, adverb, conjunction. Just how you use the word. I mean, the complex, multifaceted delivery, the standard, simple... Fuck off. To suggest enough, this conversation is over. The tired... Fuck off. ...of disappointment and the full Logan Roy... Fuck off. Just all-out primal raw glimpse into the abyss. Can you give me that one, Brian? Fuck off. Only human darkness can follow that fuck off. <laughs> I know so well from growing up in Liverpool, not too dissimilar from Dublin or Glasgow. Oh, no, it all comes from the Irish roots. I mean, the Irish swear better than anybody. You know, the Scots really make it violent, but the Irish make it poetic. When you say that fuck off, I know headbutts are coming. You've said, quite frankly, when people <laughs> ask you at the stage door on TikTok or on Instagram stories, I want Brian Cox to tell me to fuck off. You've said it's a wonderful thing to be able to do because that's exactly what you do want to tell them. Fuck off. Yeah, that's kind of what you do want to tell them. It's, 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 it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. There's a succession meme that says if Logan Roy had had therapy, there'd be no need for the show. There's been no therapy. So while the show is about family and wealth, Human abuse is at the heart of it. There's mental, there's physical, Logan in a fit of helpless flailing rage, striking Roman in the face. But the scene I want to talk to you about, Brian, season two, episode three, bore on the floor. Bore on the floor. Kendall, ring the troops. Bore on the floor. Bore on the floor. Cow, get down. Greg, on the floor, bore. Bore on the floor. Oik for your sausages. The executives of Waystar Royco are on a corporate retreat at a Hungarian castle in the name of, quote, morale boosting. Logan makes up a game, the rules of which are simple. You humiliate the most emotionally frail members of your entourage by forcing them to crawl around on the ground, making pig noises while you throw sausages in their general direction. Would you agree this is peak demon Logan? It is, but from Logan's point of view, it comes from the fact that there's so much treachery in the room. There's so much... You know, and he says, I am surrounded by snakes and fucking morons. And he has that outburst. Tony Roach, who brilliantly wrote it, and I talked about it, I said, you know, we have to be very careful doing this because we don't want to blow Logan out of proportion. We don't want to go, oh, that's Logan. And the root of it was that he just is fed up. He just thinks, I'm surrounded by this. And he thinks, right. I know what I'll do. I'll play the game. I'll play the game. It's a game that he's played in the past. And he probably hasn't played it for a few years. And maybe a previous generation, he played it a lot more. But now he just goes, I'll do bore on the fucking floor. That's what I'll do. And that'll get them going. But it does come out of a genuine sense of the dysfunction of the organization. Logan Roy dusting off the classics. When you, Brian Cox, first read a scene like that, filled with humiliation and human horror. Do you salivate in your trailer? Or are you like, oh God, the cast are my friends. 
Are you like, this is going to be gruesome to shoot? Remember, as my mother says, it's only a play, it's only a poem. You know, it's not. You're committed and your commitment means that you have to step up to the plate. Playing Logan, that's required a lot. But at the same time, from Logan's point of view, you know, the whole ball on the floor thing is something that he would not necessarily have done in another situation. But because there's this air of treachery around and this air of duplicitousness that's going on. He sees it and therefore he has to clarify positions of people in who they are. And I said to Tony, I hope we're not going too far with this, you know, that we're not indulging Logan in the wrong way. And it was agreed that we're not because it's part of him clearing things out. And the other side of that is your request of Jesse Armstrong, does Logan love his children something was important for you to know why was that important to know does it give you limits on the character not necessarily limits it gives you dimension so that you are realizing that you are dealing with a father who is not capable of expressing love but he is capable of feeling it yes and in fact he does feel it but he can't express it and that's also to do with his abuse and his inability to express. That's where Logan and I differ because I can express myself. Logan has a very limited range of expression, as we can tell by his swearing, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, that's quite limiting. You know, he's complex. He's not cut and dry. I don't think of Logan as a villain. I think of Logan as a man who's dealing with the harsh realities of now. And the harsh realities of now mean that in order to make things function, Sometimes you have to behave really badly. Logan Roy is complex. Love is complex. There's so many different kinds, no matter if it's for the seemingly repressed Kendall, rapscallion Roman, conflicted Shiv, or off-the-reservation walking meme Connor. Logan's love for his children, it seems thickly coated in disappointment. Off-the-reservation walking meme Connor. I like that. (laughs) Do you think Logan feels any guilt or blame for how they've all turned out? as a steamroller more than the parent. There's several ways of looking at that. You know, I remember my great late friend, Brian Dennehy, we just said that psychological abuse, all bets are off after the age of 25. You can't keep playing your childhood card. Oh, I did this, I did that. I agree with that to a certain extent, but you also cannot deny your history. You cannot deny that you've been brought up in certain kinds of ways, and therefore you've encountered certain attitudes which you don't necessarily share, but attitudes have forced you into certain situations. And I think that's true of Logan. Shaw wrote a great thing, a writer who's very much out of fashion now, but a great writer. There's a play called Miss Alliance. And he writes about the shyness of child and parent. And he said that there is an element with parents and children on both sides, which makes certain bridges very hard to create. I think Logan has that difficulty. Which kid is he most disappointed by? He keeps trying with Kendall, but Kendall ultimately is the most disappointing. He's such a (laughs) crybaby. He really is. It's like the minute you walk into a room, a baby cries because you're in the room. There's no way to start because that child is programmed to cry whenever you walk in the room. I think that's something that Logan has suffered from in relationship to Kendall. Connor is an interesting child because he's a child who's escaped into fantasy and escaped into this kind of wackiness. And in a way, he's delightful. He's more delightful. And he has, you know, he's a lot of 
regard for Connor, even though he thinks he's an idiot, run for president. He said, oh, stop all that shit. What are you doing? But at the same time, there is a sort of little boy wonder about Connor. And with Roman, Roman has used his jokes and he's kept everything like that. He's not taken on his responsibility. And that's why it's such a big thing that happened when he saw that the Middle Eastern money thing was a complete no-no. It wasn't going to happen. And he saw through it before anybody else done. Carl, who was the financial director of the company, also acknowledged that's his skill, that what he did there was pretty amazing. Danny, my banker, of course, is losing a big deal on that because he had a big investment. <laughs> oh, so Danny. That deal is gone. Shiv is just very bruised. Being the, the spoiled daughter doesn't necessarily help the princess from an early age and clearly smart, probably the smartest of all of them. But at the same time, this urge to reveal everything, to tell everything, want to play these sexual games with her husband, who doesn't really want to do any of that. He's a very simple guy from Minnesota. He's made to act in these ways. And that's what's so interesting about their relationship. It's getting deeper and he's beginning to throw all that off. He doesn't want to know about all that. She's also realizing that it's kind of bankrupt that situation. God bless, Tom. You were once asked, Brian, who should ultimately gain control of Waystar Royco. You said the one who should get it is the one who deserves it. Yeah, exactly. Jerry then. Jerry is like the bridge. As a bridge, <laughs> he's not going to be dismantling it. I mean, it's still a big problem because he's also fighting the takeover bid. I think that he's well, he's beset. <laughs> you know. The end of season two became a little like Survivor played out with more Kashmir and limo drivers. The family turn into a circular firing squad. And at the end, Logan Roy tells his most entwined in the business son, Kendall, he's going to take the fall for the massive sexual harassment and cover-up scandal that's threatening to kill the family's corporate empire. You're not a killer. You have to be a killer. Kendall responds by giving your character a kiss, a Judas kiss, as he then goes out and publicly turns whistleblower, which you, Logan Roy, watch live on television with a Mona Lisa smile on your face. Brian, was that a smile of a father finally proud of his son, Kendall, finally going through puberty? Or was it a chess grandmaster playing a dozen games at once and still keeping several moves ahead of his opponents? I think it's a bit of both. The lad is finally, in a way, stepping up to the plate. But it's a pretty shifty plate. And I think he's very sort of going, OK, good, well done. We've had so much treachery from Logan throughout. And we suddenly said, now it's public. Now it's out. Now it's there. It's there in the ether now. It's not so kind of cancer making held within the family. It's out there. Now and then, no, fine, good, get on with it. And so and then he thinks, OK, yes, that's rather good. We did that rather well. That was a rather good move on Kendall's part. I understand that. But at the same time, you go, so... Now this is where the fun starts. <laughs> what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? And of course, that's the thing about Logan is he loves the challenge. He loves the challenge. And I mean, sees it as an act of betrayal on Kendall's part, but he just loves the fact that, ah, the old juices are going to get going again. And we're going to have to deal with this whippersnapper. You said at the scene, it's a completion but there's life in the old dog yet and we've got quite a journey now. Logan has to reclaim himself. Yet the season finale was titled This Is Not For Tears, which is a quote from John Berryman's poem Dream Song 29. Ghastly with open eyes, he attends, blind. All the bells say, too late. This is not for tears. Thinking, 
Does that capture Logan's reality at the end of season two? Yeah, I think that's very good. This is not for tears. I think that's very good. The thing about Logan is he's incredibly practical. He deals in practical terms with everything. He doesn't attitudinize. You know, everybody attitudinizes around him. His presence creates that. And of course, he's so bored with it. He finds it so tedious. That goes right back to his 18th birthday when they bring all these presents. And he just goes, uh, so, I mean, I'm, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and I understand that because, you know, when you've got to a certain point in your life, you're going, what impresses? And what impresses is people behaving, being themselves. And that's the difficulty for Logan. That's the tragedy for him, is none of these children are themselves. They are constructs of who they are. And Logan, to a certain extent, is also a construct, as we all are. We all construct our structure of our lives. But sometimes the construct is suffocating. And sometimes it stops you blooming. It stops you growing. And he realizes with his children, you know, that they are quite construct and he's sort of moved away from that he's moved beyond that he's just another white male dinosaur in a death row one of my favorite episodes of succession season two episode eight dundee in which you return to logan roy's hometown also brian cox's hometown to celebrate 50 years in the news business by dedicating a journalism school bearing the logan roy name quick segue roman buys you the scottish football club hearts which he thought was your childhood team you tell him you support their rival club, Hibs. A delicious scene of gesture and empty gesture. Is Brian Cox Hearts, Hibs, or Dundee or Dundee United? I'm both Dundee and Dundee United. Oh, I knew it. When Logan Roy returned to his birthplace, Succession could have humanised the monster. Instead, they made him appear even bleaker. But what was it like for you to return to the town of your birth as a star of a globally popular show in which you play a self-made media titan returning to a similarly humble-rooted hometown, wheels within wheels. What was that like for you? It was great. I mean, I had a great time. But the thing about when I go home, you know, it's like my mother says, it was only a film. There's always this kind of flattening of things. You know, I mean, if you do anything that's remotely good or exciting, they'll always say, oh, that was quite nice. You know, <laughs> that's it. That's the praise that you get. And you learn to live with that. And I've lived with that all my life. I lived with the fact that I'm always kept in my place. Yes. I'm still wee Brian Cox. I'm still the youngest kid of that particular Cox family. And that doesn't change. You are, but yet your own personal rise is, quite frankly, as fascinating as Logan Roy's fictional one. A penniless boy from Dundee rising to become TV's favourite billionaire. It is a hell of a role, Logan Roy. And you've had a fortunate career. You've described it as that of a shapeshifter. You've played hundreds of characters on stage and screen. Where does Logan Roy live for you in your own personal hierarchy? It's the culmination of a lifetime's work to get as a role that's a modern kind of, well, Shakespearean, for the lack of a better word. It has tremendous dimension, and it's not over till it's over. So you're still working on the gift that is Logan Roy, and it keeps giving. He's an awful person, but you have expressed such a sense of gratitude of his role coming along. You've said, I'm at a certain age when you're just grateful to get a role like this now. Logan is proof that if you stick around long enough, you'll eventually get a role where you think, yup, this is right. This is what I should be doing right now. There's an amazing life lesson in that, Brian. I turned it on his head and said, well, actually, it's a privilege to be given the opportunity to investigate who these people are to actually understand where they come from 
in terms of their own self-motivation. And that's what's great about my job. You know, my job allows me to do that. And it gives me the material to do that with. And when you've got a role like Logan Roy, it's bliss because it's fantastic material. It's a reflection of that important life lesson summed up by an old saying of your mother's about hard work and fate. What's for you? Will not go by you. Exactly. And it is that. It's very much that. That's been an adage of all my life, that when I've lost out and I've had a lot of rejection in my career, but I've always come back to that thing that my ma used to say, what's for you will not go by you. Thank you, Brian Cox. Godspeed. Take care. We will be back next week. Until then, some classic Cox. Fuck off. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.